Welcome to the Black Queens on Stage podcast, presented by Black Literature and Art Queens Network, where we bring our queens to the stage. Welcome to the podcast where we honor and acknowledge Black women performers and discuss racial issues within Michigan performing venues. I'm Ashley M. Lyle, and welcome to the second season of Black Queens on Stage. I'm so excited to get this season started, and this episode, we're kicking this season off on a unique note. Now, I am joined today by a performer that's not originally or currently from Michigan, but she is a passionate activist and facilitator for anti-racism in the theater world. Please welcome activist, anti-racism consultant, educator, actor, and director, Nicole M. Brewer. Hi, Nicole. How are you today? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for that introduction. Yeah. I am well. Listen, I had to go over it and over it. I'm like, am I getting too much? Am I doing too little? Something's got to be right. This is Nicole Brewer. Don't screw up. Don't screw up. <laughs> Uh, right. Let's screw up. I think I feel like that is my my hashtag screw up. That is how I show up in the world. So I deeply appreciate you. <laughs> well, the, and that's what you start off all of your classes with is that you speak in draft, which mm -hmm. I think is fantastic, you know, because we're human. We we are liable to mess something up at some point. As long as we take accountability for that mess up, go back and correct it. I'm on with that word. <laughs> So why don't you give our listeners uh, your proper introduction? Tell us more about who you are so that way our listeners know who I'm really speaking to. I am, um, I just like, that's such a loaded question for me. Because like, which one of the identities do you kind of jump into and go down? <laughs> um, but I guess I would say for, uh, first and foremost, I am, I'm a black woman, the daughter of black parents and um, black ancestors and just wanted to name that very deeply as, I don't know, the last few years I've, I've been deepening my practice with remembering, inviting my ancestors along for my journey as well, like in conjunction with the, the faith that I practice and my Christianity. And so it's like, where do these things uh, connect? I would say too that like born and raised in California, so repping Cali hard, a Howard graduate, so repping HBCUs and um, just a theater maker. And the full the fullness of that in terms of directing and acting, educating, right, and facilitating for the industry. So I think those are, and I'm a caregiver. So I think those are like the identities that I would want to lay out for the audience as I as I move through the world. That's beautiful. I love that. I really do love that. Now describe to me your style of acting. <laughs> I you know what I would say as an actor, I'm trying to be as truthful as I possibly can in terms of the characters that I have the, you know, ability to embody. But I would say aesthetically, like what kind of acting am I drawn to? I'm, in, I'm drawn to acting across difference where people are unapologetically allowing themselves to meet the conditions of the character, if that makes sense. There's something about that 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 you can feel like it's palpable 
Um, and it's like not my brain, but my body responds to it. And so I endeavor to try to also, when I am acting, to create that for myself. And I find that for me, the only way in which I can do that is not starting my process from a lie, right? Not starting my process from some place of like emptiness or having to strip away aspects of myself in order to get to where I need. But like, how do I, how do I show up in the fullness of me? And whichever one of these identities is most forward facing, like how do I show up and excavate that more and not apologize for it, if that makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that clearly makes sense. It, it, to, to be 100% honest, I, I heard of you, but I didn't know the actual depth of your career and what you were doing with, with in, as, in regards to activism until my friend Dan uh, told me about you and your workshop. Um, I don't, I don't know if you remember Dan, but he was in one of your, um, we were both in, I believe in the August, August or October class. And, but yeah, he told me about, about your class and I was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let, but by the time we first found out about you, your, your class was already full up. And every time we tried to check, it was already full. We was like, damn it. <laughs> So I just painstakingly stalked the Eventbrite page until I found found the class. And then I was like, Dan, we got to sign up. It's open. Let's go. Let's go. So <laughs> I love this so much. Shout out to Dan. Thank you, Dan. Yes, Listen. shout out to Dan. And actually, <laughs> I've got a couple of questions from Dan that he wants to ask you. And that'll be towards the end of it. Because I, I know that he was, you, I, you know, I wanted to definitely give him that, that opportunity to ask you some questions that's been burning in the back of his mind as well. Yeah. And Dan is actually my partner in the workshop that we created called Toward an Anti-Racist Michigan Theater. And that, that's, been, that's been pretty, you know, pre- I, I will call it successful as, as much as it can be. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. when you have the title anti-racist or anti-racism in it, people immediately shut down, you know, it's, what can you do, you know? So still keeping in the same, same idea of your acting and your craft, how do you prep before each rehearsal or performance? (laughs) I love that. I'm like, ah, (laughs) it's been a while for me um, in terms of like the last role that I did, I think it was two years ago. And that was a particular kind of piece that didn't have a traditional rehearsal. So I would just say, I don't know in, in that aspect, but I do know in terms of directing because I, I have done much more directing in the last few years. And that was not necessarily because I saw myself as a director, but I just love theater so much. And after I had had uh, my, first, my first kid, I couldn't really keep up with that acting schedule, right? Mm-hmm. Like, not only of the rehearsals, but also then the run became a bit much. And so I kind of slid into directing or whatever. And I would say, you know, how I prepare for those spaces is to the best of my analysis at that time, because it's constantly shifting, evolving and changing and something else is emerging for me, is considering the impact of those bodies of people who are coming in to collaborate, right? Like really going, what does it mean to be in this space? Is that something that I can name? I mean, can I talk about the history of the location or the history of the school in relationship to racism or oppression? Um, can I be paying attention to 
the needs of the folks that are gathered in the room, like really paying attention to those nonverbal dialogues around whether people are exhausted or they're something else is more pressing that we have to tend to possibly in the rehearsal space as a community or not. And really just having this invitation around allowing people to show up as best they possibly can and in choice about how they show up. If, if, if that's like, I'm thinking about like a practice of in terms of conscientious theater training and directing, I talk about shared meals and creating places and for people to bring in food for us to share and creating care kits and these types of like ways that I'm thinking about the human's needs within this process. So I spend a lot of time, I spend, uh, spend a lot of time doing that. And then I spend a lot of time thinking, how can I get people to get to this work that feels authentic for them without causing more harm, especially if we're working on something and because of my blackness and, and because of a lot of the material that comes my way in terms of directing, there's always some type of performance of trauma in it. So like, how am I talking very openly about that and asking people to constantly be negotiating what their needs may be in order to do this work and also get through the run of it? So I would say that's how I show up as a director in terms of like pre-thinking and then like creating the conditions in the space actually for people to tell me, right? So that I'm not too far gone in terms of paternalism and thinking that I have any kind of answer to what somebody's needs might be, but wanting to create the container where someone can can share that. So how how can you prepare yourself or prepare as an act um, as a director to not go into that sector of of trauma? Because I I'll say for <laughs> I'll say for me, um, I, I didn't go to college for acting. I learned from a private tutor and he derived his work from the work of Eric Morris. And a lot of, not a lot, but one, one of the exercises that we practice was getting that option, getting that chance to actually tell somebody off. I can't remember the name of the exercise, but mm -hmm. getting the option to tell somebody off. And I had that option to, to do that with one of my fellow actors. And it just, it, it didn't end well for me. It didn't end well for the person that I was imagining that was sitting in the chair. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, how can you really prepare or do some do the do a practice without jumping into trauma? Mm. Come on with that. You know, because it, it's almost like it's it trauma feels like it's something that just goes hand in hand with li with life. You're going to experience yeah. some type of trauma, unfortunate as it is. You know, yeah, so yeah. it's like, why, why does it have to come up in your practice? You know, mm -hmm. but mm. I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm speaking methodically. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just like, I mean, what you just said there about trauma and life, right. And how hand in hand they are. And I think that that's an absolutely true statement in the reality we find ourselves in, which is we find ourselves living in an oppressive society. And we have an oppressive culture. Uh, we have a country that was founded on, you know, um, absolutely the commodification of body and labor and work, founded on being overly punitive, inhumane, lacking moral <laughs> judgment. And that is so deeply embedded in right now, present day, how we function. So I think you're absolutely right. Like these things are linked. I think too, in that, acknowledging that for me, it's like the wonderment of, you know, I know that there is seven generation thinking, and so I don't need to reinvent the wheel. But it was like really the wonderment for me around what is the work that I'm doing right now? What, how am I toiling 
in this very oppressive construct to create the conditions for that to not be true anymore. Like for this fact that you just stated no longer to be true and to no longer be true for a few generations, right? Like, oh no, we don't, we don't operate like that anymore. Where life and trauma are inherently bound together. So I think for me that re- that requires a lot of consciousness and, and around being in community with folks whose analysis is deeper than mine. Like we're aligned in terms of anti-racism, mm-hmm. but where they are in the journey and the work and where they are in terms of their expanse is further than I am. And so it offers me the opportunity of like, oh, this is a survivable event and this is what it looks like on this level. And so to like, I don't know, keep giving me something to work for and work towards, not because it's trendy, but because it is healing. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, everything that I, I think that I am doing is healing me in terms of the work, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, let's be clear, some stuff <laughs> is not. So then in, in the work, what kind of techniques have you learned in your career to get you where you are today? Ooh. Um, I share with people that the work that I offer, right? So the conscientious theater training, which is a, a methodology for training people in a theater that uh, I developed and started about 10 years ago. And then I think was pretty solid around seven years ago as something that I could share with other people. And then two years and some change, um, I added this anti-racist theater component to my work. So what I would say is I did a lot of like reading, not on purpose, it's just who I am as a human being. A lot of reading, a lot of watching, um, you know, documentaries on like just random things that seemed interesting to me. And all of it was outside of theater. And then when I would hear an idea that made sense and like someone's talking about science or someone's talking about agriculture or architecture, um, I would just make notes of it. And then I started to stitch these ideas together. Like, oh, okay, if it's working for this industry, then how would it work for the theater industry? Oh, I see how that's working there. Okay, great, 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 great. So created for myself, I think like stitched together a tapestry of ideas and wisdom and people already doing the work in different sectors and then applied it to theater specifically, right? Knowing like my degrees are in acting, both of them. I'm a BFA in acting from Howard University and I have an MFA in acting from a school in the Midwest. So um, I just had this analysis of like all of the places where I thought there was gaps and then this, this kind of I don't know, cross difference got put together to create the work that I show up with now. So wanted to say that. And then a few years ago, heavily into social justice in terms of like joining art equity and, you know, the wisdom that is the folks that make up that organization. Great organization. Um, and, right. Oh my gosh. I love them so much. I, I took their everyday justice course. That was, that was hella eye-opening. Love it. I want to take their facilitator course too. Yes. Come on and join the family. I'm here for that, <laughs> Ashley. I'm here. Yeah. I quote them every day. Every day, Ashley. Every day. There's something. Someone in that organization has said something absolutely. that is absolutely in my work right now. So, I, I yes. actually, because um, we, we've, Dan and I, we've already done two of the workshops. Um, and when, 
to our to my listeners, if you're listening to this right now, it is November 22nd, 22nd, right? 22nd? No, November 21st. 21st. I'm already yeah. jumping ahead. It's November 21st. <laughs> if you're listening to this tomorrow, which is the 22nd, will be our mm-hmm. final workshop. Okay. And this workshop is specifically for the theater leaders in Michigan. And I honestly forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, oh, we, we were talking about our equity and how every, you know, every day they say something comes yes. up and then you, you connected it to your workshop. <laughs> yes. So I was posting it on my Facebook page, um, you know, giving a, giving a positive shout out to these theaters that have attended. And the last one that I post up, I said, I just want to make sure that I quote the executive director of our equity, Carmen Morgan. And she said, don't use my training as an alibi for your racism. God, when I, when she said that, I was like, Ooh, oh, was that my spirit? Cause I just felt it. <laughs> yes, come on, Carmen. Yes. Was, mm-hmm. Wow. Like, wow. Seriously. I mean, cause that's what they're doing. That's what some of them are doing, especially with those solid black squares that they like to post on their Instagram or their Facebook page. And then mm-hmm. they don't follow through. No. Nope. Nope. Um, and that and that was honestly the reason why Dan and I really started creating the workshop, you know, because we saw it and then we were like, well, wait a minute, your theater has been known to do A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. So now you're for Black Lives Matter? Come okay. on. Okay. <laughs> Come on, speak that truth. That's real. Yeah, it's That's really real. real. And then and then not understanding, not connecting to how that is re-traumatizing mm-hmm. and, and the spectrum of trauma. You know, it's just like we live in such a, such an awfully imbalanced, <laughs> um, that was me editing myself, because, um, you know, for my workshops, I'd be quick to <laughs> be cussing, but I have to get myself together. My babies are here. But, you know, it's like so quick, yeah. so quick to just think that trauma is physical abuse, so quick to conflate it with other types of trauma, that if it isn't violent, then it isn't trauma or should not produced within us even a stirring around trauma and it's like your statements when you have a history of metaphorically creating the conditions for me not to be able to breathe Mm -hmm. is highly problematic and hurtful at the least and that's like the very least and then the higher end of that spectrum is you know, re-traumatizing on so many different levels. So it's like big up to you, big up to Dan to going, there's a gap, there's a need. And we have in our wheelhouse right now in our capacity, the ability to call folks in and say, because, you know, of your particular passions, we are demanding better Mm -hmm. because we know that you are capable of better. So like (laughs) deep admiration and respect. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm, and honestly, we, when, when Dan and I attended your course, it kind of really catapulted us, you know, it, it, we were like, okay, so we need to reevaluate some stuff. Here's what we need to do. And, we, you know, we're frantically going through our stuff. And we wanted to make sure that one, that we weren't copying exactly what you were doing, because we, we had already put down a base of what we were doing. And it was very similar to what you had already put. So we yeah. were like, okay, let's, let's kind of readjust. So that way, it's it, the framework of it is similar, but not the entire thing is similar, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, it's whew, this entire workshop, the whole process of building it has definitely been eye-opening, but then trying to get in contact with these 
predominantly white-owned theaters together to to actually say like, hey, we're giving you on a silver platter <laughs> how you cannot be racist mm-hmm. and take out racist daily pe- practices. And we're giving it to you. And then they immediately reel back and say, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it. Nope. I don't want it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's mm-hmm. so amazing. It's really amazing. But then you've got your Facebook pic, your Facebook profile picture with the banner that says Black Lives Matter. Come again, right. ma'am. Right. Come again. I, I, I don't I don't get it. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't get it either. And I'm just like, and I just recently started saying this too, like, I don't know, maybe a month ago, but I was just like, two white people, it is not your whiteness that is irrelevant. And it's the white supremacy within you. Exactly. And that is the same for me, you know? So the people who are like, I don't want it, I don't want it. For me, they fall in the category of people who are uh, like, oh, my whiteness is under attack. And it's like, no one's attacking your whiteness. First of all, no one's attacking you, period. How about that? How about that? How about that? But I am absolutely with the fullness of my ancestors and myself in this moment calling on you to be better about your white supremacy because it is abusive behavior. And I'm so, so sick of people not feeling it in that scope right Mm -hmm. like you need to be able to feel that like if you know there have been many instances where I've been on public transportation or like in a store or whatever and just seen a mama going off on a one-year-old or a two-year-old like real wild abuse right and wanting to paint too that this is not just black folks uh, I have seen this with with other folks as well, specifically wanting to name white, just in case anyone's like mental picture is forming to only see Black women as abusive to young children. And, and it's like, what happens to my body? That is felt. That is so felt. And yet time and time and time again, racism is happening and just flowing over. And we as Black people we are on the front lines of that. And it is not felt, it is not registered as the abuse that it is. And, I, and I'm just like, for me, you know, especially as I'm getting more and more exhausted and tired of facilitation, I'm on my way out. Uh, you just caught me, Ashley. <laughs> like, I just want a few months of like not talking about it and, and not doing that work. But it's just like, that's where I'm at right now. Like, this is abuse. Feel that. I don't want the intellectual, hyper-intellectual understanding of abuse. I want you to feel it just as you would if I was abusing a child. That kind of like guttural understanding of wrong, right? This is wrong. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing it for a while. You know, (laughs) a long while. What, seven, eight years? Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, it's understandable that that you're getting to like a a, a long burnout point. That's understandable. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, that that's actually one of the questions that I want to ask you is further down the thing, but how do you keep your mental health in check when you have yeah. to facilitate? Yeah, learning, definitely learning as I go because the, the sheer amount, right? Um, prior to the summer, prior to more state-sanctioned Black death, right? There were folks that were reaching out, but absolutely to the magnitude of the amount of calls and emails and reach out, like many facilitators are experiencing right now, is just wild. And I would liken that to the, you know, Me Too movement, mm. also started by a Black woman and appropriated by uh, whiteness in, in Hollywood, right? Of just like... <laughs> <laughs> that 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 emergence of 
you know, Harvey Weinstein and other sexual predators, the hashtag me Too, the adoption of like a celebrity endorsement, and then the emergence of um, theatrical intimacy direction, right, which had already been around, Mm -hmm. but they had that container. And so it just, everybody wanted it all this language. And like, that is where I'm at right now of like this rocket ship of acknowledgement or whatever has created for me a deep kind of burnout because I'm not doing the other things that I was doing. So like before Ashley, I would direct and I was facilitating or I would direct facilitate and someone who already knows that I can act would ask me to act in something. And I go, okay, yeah, I can do that. I can't do that. Right. So there were many ways in which I was showing up one as a practitioner doing the work, not having to explain it to anybody else. And then someone who's being hired to like kind of outside, let me, let me show you this. Let me share this framework with you. Um, Let me hold space for you. Let me hold space for this harm. And now it's just like no directing, right? So I haven't directed anything since the beginning of the year. That show opened at the top of February. And I definitely haven't acted in anything. The only thing that I have been doing is teaching and facilitating um, anti-racist theater stuff. And so like, I'm, I'm just, I'm burnt out of that, but I'm not burnt out of the work in terms of liberation and how that shows up. Right. I'm honestly surprised that you, for, for December, so December's coming up. I'm surprised that you didn't take that entire month off. <laughs> Honestly. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to work on that for January though. Right. Hey, do it. Do it. Do it. Take that time for you. <laughs> you know, take that time for you. Um, that's honestly what Dan and I were talking about because creating this entire process and then now we're doing it in November. We're both absolutely exhausted. He has yeah. his part-time job that that is just stealing all of his full-time hours, stealing Come his four full-time hours. Mm-hmm. And I have two businesses that I run, plus I have a part-time job. So, you know, it, the entire time of COVID, I've just been completely busy. He's been completely busy. And then plus this workshop, adding that, where we find the time like throughout the week, like, okay, let's meet up on a Saturday and we're going to hammer these details out and then now here's November and our entire Sundays are completely filled filled up Mm -hmm. to teach people how to not be racist (laughs) come on and say that say that say that that prep work that prep work though like you can't just hold space you can't just like I'm gonna show up and hold no yeah 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 I feel that so deeply with you like yeah and you know honestly I the 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 amount of stress that we that we feel with just this one time that we've created this workshop you've been feeling this for years years (laughs) so (laughs) i personally can't say that i can equate with how how you feel you know but i i do understand i perfectly understand because when when you have your art outlet and then the work that you have to do when it's work that you love to do it's the work you know so when you have that out artlet kind of just letting you open up and just open your chest up and just let it all out, you know, it, mm-hmm. it really creates that balance that's needed. Yeah. Um, so I, like I said, I perfectly understand. So how did you trans transition from actor and director to educator to activist? I'm like, you know, and I only say that because, you know, hindsight's 2020, but I think, you know, just inherently being black, mm-hmm. you know, I very naively bought into, I'm just going to call it because I think it's recognizable, the picket fence lie. And I'm not talking about romantic party, you know, or relationship. What I'm talking about is that narrative of work hard, 
this is the pathway to success, education, 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 and you will be successful. And same thing, like I think the, the, the white picket story for the theater industrial complex is like have some type of talent that externally has been rewarded for your ability to sing, dance, or tell a story, fill in the blank how that goes, or be funny, go get the training, find the people who are doing what you want to do and copy what they did. And many of those people got degrees or education or studied at conservatory or had a coach or, you know, whatever, do that work, do more work, get out and network with people, do more work, and then you'll get to this place of being successful. Some people put five years on it, some people put 10 right? On how long you'll have to do it, but then you will emerge on the other side. Okay. But um, I'm just like, I'm so dry. Not to cuss, but listen, listen, I'm gonna tell you right now, you can cuss if you want to. I listen. <laughs> oh, I know you know who you're getting, Ashley. I just want to make sure my little kids are like, you know, because like they're right at that moment. Oh, yeah. Right they repeat moment. everything. Well, how about this? Right? Like my daughter, my daughter said something the other day about like something smells like piss and I said piss <laughs> like when did you start saying piss and I told my best friend and my best friend was you you forgot it from you and I was like I don't say that <laughs> girl the other day I was walking outside I said what something smell like piss and I was thinking like somebody's dog had or done something and I was like oh I guess that was me so anyway oh I'm just trying to be God. better Try to be more conscious of the sponges who I have in my house with me, um, but not because I felt like you were you were you were you were saying no, I can't. So that's what it is. Right. And she's eight, by the way, too. So you know, like, and like, oh. she said it with the fullness of her chest too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have to do. I have to do better. <laughs> We think these babies ain't listening. They listening. Listen, they are listening. Listen, are listening. I I was cussing at that age. I was cussing at that age. I'm 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 not gonna I'm not gonna lie. I was cussing at that age, especially when those kids at school. I went to an all white private Catholic school, so my mom would pick me up, and of course mothers know when their child is upset or anything else. So she's like, "What's the matter with you?" I was like, "Oh, it's just this one girl." Mama, can I cuss? And she was like, okay. <laughs> I said, she's such a bitch. And so she was like, it, mind you, we're in, we're in the driveway, drive-thru at the bank. She's filling out a deposit slip. And I said, she's such a bitch. You know, you can hear that, <laughs> that written record scratch. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh, yep. They repeat everything. <laughs> they repeat everything. And then she looked, my mother looked at me like, where did you learn to speak like that? And I was like, I heard you say it. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother hold, hold, does not hold her tongue. She never has and never will. So for me at that age, <laughs> to know it. <laughs> Like, I get it from my mama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yep. 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 Oh God. Shout out to all the mamas out there that are blindsided by our children's realness. How about that? Because <laughs> that's the back with me like, what? Hilarious. <laughs> but uh, I, I, 
I get it. I totally get it. Oh, I love it so much. I love it so much. I don't even know what the question was. I got off on that whole. Okay. Oh, the, the question was, how did you transition from actor and director to educator to activist? Oh, yeah. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bringing me back, bringing me back, setting it back. Yeah. So like buying into that narrative, right, of what I had to do. And I did it. I mean, I got my degrees and I wasn't working and something had to give either I wasn't as talented or capable of doing this work, which I just refused to believe, or something was actually wrong with the container in which I was being asked to do my work and the limitations that were put on me, right? Because of the darkness of my skin, the height of my body, the thickness of my waist, and what I was seen as able to do, you know? I mean, I I even remember going into a casting agency here in Washington, D.C., where the woman, a white woman, short, petite, thin white woman said to me, "Um, you're you're not fat enough to be cast as this, and you're not thin enough. I mean, like, this is what she said. You're not thin enough for this, so I don't really know how we would get you work. And I mean, this is me, like, I think I'm 20, 21, size 12 or 14, right? Like healthy for me. And just the kind of internal internalizing that of like, oh my God, there's no place for me, right? Wow. Um, you know, and, and so I had to do other things. I was never going to make it in this industry. This industry is actually not set up for me to make it in this industry as just an actor. And I think even the people who are making millions of dollars, like I think about Angela Bassett and the foray into producing, like, I, I just don't think that's accidental. I think, you know, yes, there may be more agency in terms of like the work that you're doing, but I think that this industry demands that we do more if we want to stay in it. So for me, my particular gifts or places where you were talking about my heart's work, but it's still work, uh, a line is around education. I love teaching adults. I want to be real specific because I, I have been a, <laughs> a substitute teacher and I have been a high school teacher um, and a junior high teacher as well. So I love teaching adults or near adults because high school kids rock as well. But my spirit is not aligned with little, little babies. And so <laughs> just put that out. God bless the folks who teach the young ones because that is not me. And I think the direction of it came around like how many stories that I've seen actually where I just felt like it was stale. It was still storytelling. They didn't, they could have done more to been inviting or inventive or even tell stories in a way that felt like it was speaking to my racial experience as like black people and, and how we never bought into the fourth wall. I think specifically, you know, in terms of African-American, that just constant talking throughout a story is because we are, are so into the story right? I'm so drawn into it, a part of it. It doesn't, it doesn't exist as something that's way out there. It exists in the moment with us and we are a part of it as well. So like, I think the directing part of me is just sitting and and going, oh, I'm bored by this, not by the storytelling, but by the, the way in which you ruined an opportunity to tell it more, to tell it better. And then also having kids. So I like this schedule. And then I think the writing was just like not being able to find the literature, the things that I wanted around the work that I was looking for, right? Like I was able to find a lot of stuff on equity, diversity, inclusion, and access, but I was just like, I had been in so many spaces where I was still being harmed. Where were the articles about that? You know, where are the articles about, you know, white people directing 
whatever the hell their hearts desire. And I, I, if I'm lucky, may get hired to direct a Black piece, you know? So it was like these kinds of things that led me to write. And actually, I was, I was burnt out of writing as well. But now, now there's some hunkering in me of like wanting to come back and talk a little bit more too around just anti-Blackness in our industry. And again, the just like spectrum of that, because I'm, I'm noticing a lot of people just leaning towards the violent aspect of anti-Blackness with no awareness of like the day-to-day nuance of how that shows up in their practice, like black box on Instagram. And they see that as, oh no, I'm in solidarity with, you are not. That it, for me, without the history, without the work, without the acts, without the intention to shift and change is a form of anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. When you put that, those statements up and you've never considered my well-being a moment in your organizational life, nor will you consider it after this wave has passed there will still be plenty of people that are writing the liberatory movement, but there will be a drop-off, a sharp drop-off when the next, you know, injustice captures the attention of, of, of white people. I just have to name them because it's the white people um, who hold incredible influence. Yeah, that's true. I was actually reading your article about white directors directing <laughs> BIPOC shows. Mm-hmm. And my my feelings towards it is 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 more towards that they shouldn't. But then there there are some instances where it just happens that you've got a cast that is all black just be, just based on who is picked for the show. For example, before the shutdown, I was supposed to uh, perform in a show at Detroit Repertory Theater, and mm-hmm. the cast just happened to be all black. It's a, it's a theater that that normally is predominantly Black anyway, but it's a white-owned theater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in the director, she is white. So she just happened to pick all Black people for the show. And there were things that I actually, me and uh, one of the other employees that works there, we both had to clue her in, like, okay, like, because you have a Black woman playing in this role, the nuance completely changes. Like there's one line in there that's uh, where where I have to say February is a shit month anyway. Ooh. But February is not a shit month to me because mm-hmm. I, I I'm on that stage as a full ass black woman. That's right. You know the script itself was written in the context of whiteness, mm-hmm. but you got me as this black woman, as light skinned as I am. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. still a black woman and February is not a shit month for me, mm-hmm. not at all. So we either going to have to change it or just X that line, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't talk about June, June, that's pride and black music month. We can't do that. Can't Come do Kwanzaa, uh, uh, De- December either. Cause that has Kwanzaa in it. Come on. You know, I just found out that August is black entrepreneurial month. So <laughs> that's right. Come on. Come on. We take it all the months. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rightfully so. <laughs> and, and the good thing about it is that she understood. Yeah. That's that's the key part because that's what is missing with a lot of white directors that are uh, directing Black or POC shows. Yeah. They don't want to listen. That's the biggest part. But it was a good thing that I had, still have, the director that I have because she was willing to listen to what I had to say. And so she's like, okay, we'll pick a different month. Okay, we'll change this. Okay, we'll change that. She's willing to change it or to fix it or to alter it, whatever it needs to be, just because I'm the one that's saying these lines. That's right. So that's the that's the really great part. So you touched a little bit about your conscientious theater training. 
what is the difference between that training and the anti-racist theater foundation course? The conscientious theater training is built on a cross-cultural collab- collaborative curriculum. That's a lot of C's, a lot of alliteration. <laughs> So it really is for me around here is this methodology and curriculum that is built to create the conditions where whiteness is not centered. And just like, um, I think like a a spectrum on a wheel, like a color spectrum that's put us on a wheel, um, whiteness is one slice of that versus traditional training where whiteness is all of that. And then when there is a pushing up against that, then there's space created and or gifted or given, but it's such a small slice. And then we see it in terms of electives or we see it in that, oh, well, we gave you that show or we gave you that director, we gave you that designer. You should be quiet while holding on to 99% of the resources, right? The resources are just not equitably distributed from the beginning and the get-go. So conscientious theater training seeks to create a a spectrum cross-culture so that I'm not studying any one thing because I really wanted to disrupt that binary that if we are talking about white, then we must only be talking about black. And if we're talking about black, then many people would just think blackness is African-American. It's like, there's just this huge spectrum of blackness, right? Which is even something that I wasn't aware of, right? Like as a Cali person, I was just aware of, of what my state had to offer. And it really wasn't until I was a student at Howard that I understood, felt that spectrum, right? The heartbeat of that Blackness and that, that diaspora being present. And then I think about that in relation to everyone else who I have a small engagement with, right? When I think about Asian, when I think about South Asian, that it becomes quite unfair to just stay in these, I don't know, gray general tropes of people's identities. And it's like, why can't we get specific? Why can't we study um, concepts and ideas? So that's conscientious theater training. Anti-racism or anti-racist theater came about because we weren't naming racism enough for me. Mm -hmm. We're skirting all around it, right? But it was still very much present still very much centered in even the equity, diversity, inclusion, and access committees and forums and, you know, places that could be completely dedicated to quote unquote equity and diversity and being anti-racist, but have no policy, no interrogation around their hiring practices. And so therefore hire a racist person into a position that doesn't have quick turnover, you know, like for example, or continues to give work to white people or entertains this notion. Remember when white people were like, oh no, I'm losing all this work. I I can't possibly, you know, like (laughs) y'all are overhired. Trust me when I say you're not losing anything. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. Beyonce fucking losing a thousand dollars and complaining about it. Get out of (laughs) here. That's nothing for you. You know what I mean? Oh my God, I lost a thousand dollars. What? Well, <laughs> you probably because because your money is so imbalanced she probably don't even know when she's lost thousands of dollars and that's like what I equate to the white people are like oh my god we're losing work or I have friends who aren't working or whatever and it's like y'all y'all that's analysis needs some tweaking it's this interesting to use Beyonce as, as, as an example <laughs> she better not ever <laughs> okay <laughs> Like, listen, big up Beyonce. I hope you're listening to this podcast, but boo, let's be real. Oh, if Beyonce if was lost, listening to this, I think. Come on. 
I would faint. We're speaking that into an existence. Ashley, Beyonce is listening. And we just called her out because if she lost a thousand dollars, I know she cannot be complaining to nobody. <laughs> Where is my thousand dollars? I demand receipts. Um, you know, so that kind of thing. So that's like that was the need for the anti-racism. And that is the the difference for me too, is like I am specifically talking about anti-racist practice within the theater industrial complex. I am also then offering people um, these guiding principles of harm reduction, harm prevention, and relationship repair as active strategies, active tools to make sure that they are in this embodied practice of anti-racism. And, you know, I, I would say, even though it didn't develop in that order, that anti-racist theater is the, the larger thing, right? Mm -hmm. And conscientious theater training is just one, like, spoke of that, that work. And it, and it, it is deeply, deeply, deeply um, connected through my desire to really meet human needs, right? To, to center relational being, being with people versus seeing people as transactional, which is what I feel like our industry does. It like sees you for your worth, right? Like, well, who are you connected to? What can you do for me? Yes or no, instead of going who is this human being? What is this relationship that we could be building and or in e with each other engaged with? And then can I understand the, the various levels of relationship um, and make sure that I'm engaging in relationships that feel nutritious to me as well, right? And, and everything doesn't have to be about the commodification of the relationship. Um, I think the financial commodification of the relationship. So that's the difference for me that anti-racism is this container. Let's talk about the racism. Let's name racism as given. And let's also then engage in how we all show up for whatever our work is in it to do our anti-racist practice, right? And stop waiting for perfection because that ain't, that ain't coming. <laughs> Don't they be out here? Ashley, they be out in these streets waiting for perfection, right? Always. And you know, that was one thing that that was talked about in the the BIPOC surviving white space or predominant white spaces art equity thing where they were talking about the 15 characteristics of white supremacy uh -huh. and perfectionism is one of them and the way that they you know described all of them is that two of those stuck out to me the most and that was perfectionism and the sense of urgency uh -huh. man I, I come from a background of working in a pharmacy and that's on uh, constantly a state of urgency where you have a 15 minute window to fill a prescription because people uh -huh. just just hate waiting they want to get their medicine right then and there and it's understandable that that people are not feeling well it's understandable that they need their medicine immediately but then when you have other co-workers or a superior that is constantly hounding on you you know and you know that you're doing the work, but then you've got other people that aren't doing the work. Why is it Come that on. you're you're hounding on to me, but not this person right here that clearly needs to do some work? <laughs> clearly, but you're not saying anything. I had to step away. I, ha I had to get out of it. I, I was done. I was honestly yeah. done. And even now with my two businesses, I still go through that sense of urgency, that multitasking that I have to do. Because I learned mm -hmm. that from pharmacy, you have to multitask. Mm -hmm. So then I, now it's adopted into my actual life where I literally cannot do just one thing at a time. So I'm, I'm slowly but surely breaking that. 
And then the whole idea of perfectionism as well. It's like with these podcast episodes, these last couple of podcast episodes, I'm like, okay, I'm I'm just going to cut, paste, do whatever I need to do because I, I, I was wasting too much time trying to cut out every um or uh or like or whatever you know mm-hmm. I just said you know what let me just keep whatever I can in here close the gaps and just keep it sounding like it's conversational because that's what it's supposed to be a conversation <laughs> conversations are imperfect yeah period so we you kind of talked about this already and I just I kind of want to ask you this just in, with more in depth to it um, mm-hmm. as a black woman in a white dominated industry what kind of obstacles and challenges have you faced because you're black and a woman and how did you overcome them? Mm-hmm. Uh, pay. <laughs> pay. That's if I say nothing else. P A. <laughs> These folks. Man. Actually. <laughs> I mean, these folks be playing all kinds of games, okay? Yeah. From, you know, uh, sliding into my appointment calendar where I give like free 20-minute consultations with folks. I'm going to figure out how I can lessen that to 15. Just as a side note, um, my particular scheduling calendar will tell me how much time I spent on appointments or whatever. And those 20-minute appointments, like that monthly, that amount of time adds up. And I was like, that can't be right. Are you using Calendly? No, oh, okay. I use Acuity. Ah, and, okay. I, and I was just like, does that say hours? I spent this many hours <laughs> talking to people for free? Um, but yeah, you know, wanted to get back to pay. And I mean, you know, I'm serious. I'm like, this data helps. I, I, I think very, very deeply that the United States is, has a weird society around pay anyway like don't tell people what you make and you should already somehow inherently know how to negotiate at the level of a white man and that should be comfortable for you and if you didn't do it well that's your fault you know this kind of bullshit and so I have to say in an industry that is so deeply married like completely married to scarcity and loves it by the way married Mm -hmm. and loves this relationship with scarcity, this kind of, please, uh, can I have some more? Again, I think our industry has a pretty firm resources that are distributed inequitably, period, right? And so when it comes to like my, one of my biggest challenges, it's pay, pay me my money, pay me for the therapy, pay me for the hot yoga I gotta go to, pay me for the massage I need from holding on to the abuse and even as a facilitator, it might be like within my, like who I am as a human being to be able to take that, but it still has impact on me. I still carry the residue of that. Many times when I'm facilitating, it takes a few days for me to reset, right? That's another reason why I'm also burnt out because every few days I'm actually just facilitating another thing, but the pay. And I told a friend just recently, a a white woman who is an entrepreneur in the Bay Area. I said, man, people just keep ringing me and I can't even though I publicly said I'm tired and basically leave me the fuck alone (laughs) just let me get back to me folks are still reaching out to me and she goes raise your rates (laughs) and I'm like oh my god that's so good that is so good like raise my rates to the point where people select out you know because their budget doesn't allow them 
to engage me. So that's anyway, I'll be marinating a little bit more on that um, over the holiday break. But I have just people have called me and then at the end of the 20 minute call, I've gone, oh, we don't have a budget or could you do this for free? And I'm like, I literally had to ask this one folk who asked me to do a keynote for them. And at the end said, could I do it for free? And I was like, no, (laughs) I'm a black woman. And I wonder if you had an analysis when you asked a black woman, if she would give away her intellectual property to your audience of hundreds for free, like, did you have an analysis around that? And then there's all this kind of, oh, 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 well, we do have money. Well, if you had money, start with that. Don't ask me to do free, right? So it's like, and also, but the older I get and the more opportunities that people pay me what I say I want to make, do I understand more and more and more around this scarcity thing? Um, and and see, the last thing that I'll say too around the pay part is like the same person, very wise, love them to death, had taken a job with an organization and then found out after that organization had lowballed them to do a workshop that they had spent more money on the catering than they did on her in her particular, you know, business or whatever. And I will never fucking forget that because I often think about that. And I was a white woman, you know, so I often think in terms of my blackness, when they over here talking about how much money they ain't got, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I wonder how much you spent on them programs. I wonder how much you spend on your gala. I wonder how much, and you were asking me to come and help shift your organizational culture. Like this isn't some precursor fucking thing that you were asking me to do. You were asking me to show, show up and plant seeds that will have ramifications for years to come on your organization and you playing funny about money. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so I think I had to really have a conversation about financial worth. And I still grapple with that, Ashley, because there is that part of it that's like the capitalistic grab, 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 go, 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 get as much as you possibly can that I don't want to replicate. So uh, it's still, it's like complicated for me. It's, it's complicated in terms of my blackness and my, my, my relationship to money. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast, but I would just say, yeah, that is one of the biggest challenges that I've had to face is like fighting for the money having many, 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 many conversations about the things that I wasn't adding into my rate, whether that was my retirement plan mm-hmm. or paying for health insurance or those other things that I talked about, or even being able to build in stretches of time where I don't work so that I can fully recuperate. It was kind of like, I was still very much like, just go grateful. I'm so grateful that someone is calling me. I'm so grateful that someone is asking me to work that I would take the little crumbs that they were giving and then somehow trick myself into thinking that that was um, substantive or Mm. nutritious for me uh, as a human being. So yeah, (laughs) listen, they play all kinds of games and I'm just like, I'm not here for it. Um, and And I'm seeking more people to come into my life who have another analysis as well of like, um, how to get the skills that I think we need, we as Black women need to secure ourselves, right? Um, and because you brought up art equity, surviving predominantly white institutions, um, we'll speak Lauren Turner's name into this uh, conversation, who is just an incredible human being and an artist down in New Orleans, art equity alum, and co-founder of No Dream Deferred in in New Orleans, Mm, who talked about, like, um, Lauren said, I'm pretty sure Lauren said, because Lauren's so goddamn smart, (laughs) making sure that when I'm negotiating for my money, too, 
that I'm not just thinking about myself, but I'm thinking about like you, Ashley, mm-hmm. like when I ask for what I'm worth and that feels really scary to me, making sure that I'm thinking about now, Ashley won't have to do that if you come in with a contract after me or whatever, like they understand, oh, this is the rate or this is what this costs and this is a setting of the value versus like when I'm only thinking about myself, then I, because that is my history and my, my legacy, I like devalue myself and accept less when there is much more possible possibility there. So anti-racism work is very scary, especially for BIPOC Latinx folks. Um, We want to be able to work, but there, but some either don't want to rock the boat or some feel as though it doesn't concern them and they stay uninvolved as much as they can. How is that way of thinking damaging for all BIPOC Latinx folks and other intersecting humans? Mm-hmm. I think it's dangerous because there's no analysis of anti-Blackness. And I think it's also dangerous in terms of the go along, get along mentality is a strategy of white supremacy and racism um, to keep those in power with power. And that in and of itself robs each and every one of us of a deeper understanding of what is it our work to do, right? I remember laughing at the all skin folk ain't kin folk, you know, statement, you know, but I'm actually, when I sit with it, deeply bothered by that. And so that is something that you'll hear me say often. It's like, we all have our work to do. It's not the same, but we all have our work to do. And my access and, 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 and privilege in terms of like having gone to Howard and worked at Howard there too, has created a space for me to really intimately understand how Black people harm Black people. And I want to do more to create spaces for us to be able to, to heal from that, to heal from the ways in which we harm each other and from the ways in which we use the tools of the oppressor to keep one another down. And so, yeah, for people who are like, I don't want to rock the boat, I would say, what's behind that? And why do you have this analysis that standing up against abuse is rocking anybody's boat? Mm-hmm. Why do you continue let's, in this conversation to allow your body to be the subsidy for that organization or for the structure? Like specifically, I will speak to black people and say, we die dispro- disproportionately to white people. And when I saw that, like that study around, it doesn't even matter if you have Beyonce, Oprah money, statistically, you will still die sooner than a white person. I was like, no one can't tell me nothing. <laughs> that that is not attached to our particular day-to-day experience with racism Mm -hmm. and the way that we hold it, right? Um, And so I want to create conditions where we can let it come through us and out of us. And when it comes out, it is not taking years of our life with it. You know, we've got to be around to continue to, to tend to our own communities. And so for the Latinx, you know, population, there is so much work to do with colorism there's so much work to do with anti-Blackness within culture, you know, keep coming back to that. Keep coming back to just what's the day-to-day ways in which um, that gets played out, right? Um, so definitely want to put that put that out into space. And then, and then sometimes, actually, I'm just like, listen, Spanish is a colonized fucking language too. Mm. Portuguese, Spanish, French, English, we all got fucked. We just got fucked in different languages. So we all hey, lost hey. something. Hey, I mean, 
we as a people are quite resilient. So we took what we had and we worked with it, but I'm just like, don't play these games with me. Right, right. I was actually reading up an article of like, what is the difference between being Latinx and being Hispanic? You know, cause I, I've, I've, I, I always heard the two and I've always heard it being interchangeable, but I, it didn't sound right. Like, mm-hmm. how can you, how, how does Lat, Lat, Latinx equate to Hispanic? What is, why are they interchangeable? But with being Hispanic, you could, somebody that is Spanish from the country Spain could be Hispanic, but they can't be Latinx. Mm-hmm. Somebody that is from, um, I want to say Brazil, they can be Latinx, but not Hispanic. And the reason for that is because I believe in Brazil, their main language is Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So it, I just found that really interesting, you mm-hmm. know? So it's really interesting to hear when, like, I keep CNN on. I keep it on because... <laughs> Actually, uh-huh. let, me, let me rephrase that. The entire time during the election, like that whole week and a half during the election time, I did not yeah. have it on. I buried my nose in my work because I just couldn't. I could not. Yeah. Yeah. And then that Saturday when they declared that Biden was the winner... I was like, okay, okay. Come on, come on, come on. Yeah, it was like a collective breath, like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I I hear Latinx and Hispanic interchanged all the time. So it's like, okay, what? But what is that person's country of origin? They may be a white person that is from a Spanish-speaking culture or country. But what is their actual, where are they actually from? Are they from Spain or are they from Mexico or are they from Cuba or where, where, you know? So, yeah, where? Um, so according to your interview on Variety's podcast, Stagecraft, when talking mm-hmm. about the urgency of the Black Lives Matter movement and its resurgence, you mentioned that things happen in stages and that it's mm-hmm. okay that the urgency dies down because it just, it'll come back up. Um, would you say that that urgency in the theater community is gone, paused, or still continuing? I think that particular type of energy is gone. It's dissipated. And with that, there's just another type of energy. And I mean, even seasonally, right? Like it's just another kind of energy that is rolling through. And I still think it's very much still pointed towards justice. But I think what was happening was a whole shit ton of harm was mm-hmm. happening through that urgency. People were just like, like, like us talking about these statements or blackening out your social media feed. Like that comes from a sense of panic, a sense of urgency, a sense of I have to do right now. And what happens is you take away the space and the pause for the analysis, for the reflection, for who does this benefit? Who does this harm? Who does this center? Who does this uplift? Who does this leave out? Like, it's just like, I got to do this thing right here, right? And so now it feels like because you can't sustain that kind of energy, it has gone to another place. And where we're at feels more reflective, not without harm, but feels more reflective. And as you were saying, Ashley, about the director that you that you were working with on that play, feels like listening is happening more deeply. Mm-hmm. Still within the harm, but like people are listening and they are shifting and changing. At least that has been, speaking from my eye, my experience, even on these phone calls of like pressing, 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 pressing. We need you now. Right. And, and me going, ha, 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 ha. I cannot. Right. <laughs> to, to people going, 
we'll need you in the future. And here's the work that we're doing in the meantime, or me explaining something to folks and they're like, oh yeah, for sure. We've seen that played out here as well. And this is the ways in which we're countering it uh, is really interesting to me versus the rawness of the urgency of the summer. Um, because so many people were just for the first time feeling, because I really want to lean away from seeing it. They've seen it so many times, but the first time really feeling their own vulnerability in relationship to the interconnectedness of state-sanctioned Black death, which I think is what is also different, right? Because they were Mm -hmm. already open from the pandemic, like emotionally open and available for that to come in and, and, and for them to feel it. Do you yeah. think that same urgency is in the Black theater community or POC community? <laughs> I feel like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it feels antithetical to, 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 to the Black community. I'll just speak to that community. Like it feels antithetical to be in a state of urgency. I, I feel like, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I just okay. feel like you know, we don't operate Generally speaking, we don't operate mm-hmm. in that way. We kind of operate in get shit done mode, but not not the kind of like pressing urgency. Like that's the kind of frequency and vibration I feel around white urgency. And in terms of my black community, I feel like if something is urgent, it's like get that shit done. It's like it's just a different. It's a different kind of like smacking or feeling versus this kind of like. Right. 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 <laughs> So, <laughs> so here okay. is, this is one of Dan's questions. Oh yeah, okay, Dan's question. So this is what Dan said, at least here in Michigan, a significant portion of the anti-racism work being done, particularly regarding black individuals in theater is being done by black women. Ashley, of course, but also our friend Kelly Crump, who is EAE, I'm sorry, it's AEA, sag after actor, teacher, and founder of Michigan Artists for Diversity and, and, and Equity, and Dominique Moriso, who just became executive artistic producer at Detroit Public Theater, among others. Mm-hmm. As a Black man who frequently feels like Black men are dropping the ball when it comes to anti-racism, what are your thoughts? Is there anything you'd say in particular to Black men who are engaging in this work? Ooh, thank you. Thank you. That's... um. I think in terms of just the analysis of the black male body and already seen as a threat from childhood to then be talking about something this tender and holding space for people in that way is um, nothing short for me than an act of courage. Um, <sighs> Ooh, come on, Dan came right for my- I know, right? Came right, right for me, yeah. I tell him so. this all the time. Like I, <laughs> I cannot formulate the words that you can, so. <laughs> Yeah, this wow took me all the way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't expecting that one, but I, I think I think because of just my deep respect, my deep respect. You know, I've had some in- incredible black men in my life too, but to then take on this work and to have that space for caring, have that space for still thinking about folks who have harmed, harm, and the fullness of that, and the completeness of that harmed you. Yeah, I, I would just say. Don't do it alone as you and Dan have partnered up. Um, you know, continue to build that cohort of anti-racist folks cross ethnicity. 
Like, who are those white people that you can hold space with? Who are those Latinx people who you can hold space with? Who are those Middle Eastern people? Who are those Asian, South Asian, right? Like, who are those people who can name a thing a thing when it happens? And yeah, those are the those are like some of the big pointers of just like not holding space alone and then doing whatever it is that you need to do to reconnect to yourself. And also like not feeling like you have to be in a space that even if you took the money, and this is wisdom that came from Daniel Banks, which I appreciate so deeply, even if you took money from a folks, you still always can operate in choice to say no thank you. There are things that are happening that I'm not going to be able to show up and hold this space for you. And I'm wanting to name Adrienne Marie Brown as well, uh, in terms of believing in the possibility of somebody's transformation, like just wanting to uphold that we don't have to be a part of everybody's transformation. We can relinquish that space to someone else who can. So, ooh, Dan. I know, right? <laughs> this is why I enjoy working with him so much. This is why. This is exactly why. Um, so one more Dan, Dan's questions. Um, one of the challenges that Ashley and I have found is that in working in anti-racism in Michigan, we keep running into how, in many ways, the work is tied to the need to confront racism in the communities in which the theaters find themselves. For example, and th this is my example that I'm giving, we had some outright no's to our invitations for the workshop. Mm -hmm. One theater in particular that rejected our invite was being defended by a white actor saying, oh, but they hire black people, they're not racist. Mm -hmm. But that theater recently won a local award for portraying a black actor in a racist stereotype. Mm -hmm. um, in your work, how have you engaged theaters and individuals on that particular issue? Uh, on their racism? How have you engaged in, in theaters and individuals on the particular issue of confronting racism? Oh, well, I just go for it. Listen, Dan, boo, I go for the jugular. That's what I do. I don't have time. I don't have time to babysit it, right? right. So I do. And I, and I think like one of the exercises that I do is like I, um, I ask them, what are the ways in which your organization has upheld racist policies? And then I let them answer it. And I'm not afraid of silence. So I will, I will sit. And then I just keep telling myself, well, I'm being paid to sit here. I don't know about you. Um, you know, so people will go and have those conversations that do the like emergent strategy of, of post-its everywhere in the large easel paper and set a timer and folks go around. And then we report back out what that is, right? Of like, okay, here are the ways in which you have openly acknowledged the ways that you have engaged in racist policies or why didn't you push back against racist policies is one of the questions that I ask. And then I say, I acknowledge the harm that happens with those folks that are gathered there today. And then I say, I know that racism has happened here. So what are the ways in which you're addressing it? Like, I just don't leave any space for there to be a like, I'll pass or not us, or what a lot of people love to do, which is deflect towards what they have done and like the examples that you're offering. And it is like, well, your analysis is lacking if you think that these things are mutually exclusive, that because I have hired a Black person, I am not racist. And I always throw myself under the bus. So with these organizations, I say, as a Darcy and Black woman, if I, have, if I had my own uh, stuff that I had to deal with in terms of Black men to myself, Black men who I love, that I had to unwrite 
not just from my mind, but from my spirit, had to purge those lies that were showing up as truths that these people might harm me or, or whatever, right? You can't tell me shit mm-hmm. about where you are in your analysis and what work you ain't got to do. You need to do this work. And if we can't even straight up have this conversation, right, then what are we doing? You need to go, you need to work with somebody else to get you to a place where you can acknowledge that you have caused harm and that doesn't make you disposable. You can get back into right relationship. You can live amends in your accountability and the work and the shift and the adjustment and the change. And it might not be handholding and utopia for the folks that you have harmed, but as you continue to move through uh, your, your organization, what are you doing to make sure that future folks that encounter you don't have that same experience? What are you doing to evolve? That is what I'm concerned about, the evolution of you, not this, I don't even know what this is, Ashley and Dan, it's like a pedestal, but it's also got a glass little like house on it or something, it's mm-hmm. covered, it's precious, and uh, glass menagerie, about- yeah, that, come on with it, <laughs> a whole collection of glass figurines, men- <laughs> glass menagerie of racism, <laughs> of racism, Right. Like, oh, we don't have any of that. Or we just keep it tight to just this, to our all white board or or other ways in which we can distance ourselves from the work. And I'm just kind of like, I don't know if you peeped that or not, but you just skirted around the issue. Right. So I would say go for the jugular. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Um. <laughs> so on a, let's let's end on a positive note what is your greatest accomplishment in your entire career facilitator actor director all of it greatest accomplishment in your career so far I would probably say uh my kid right like how early we we had these conversations or they oh just overhear me in, in situations like this talking about it uh, when my daughter was five she um just decided her and this other little girl just became like attracted to each other like magnets and instant best friends and um the first time that my daughter met this little girl's mother she said hi my name is Zaya and I'm black and I think I think my daughter being able to say that at such a young age is is creating the conditions for her to be able to claim it and to be proud of herself in a way that I often felt shamed for my blackness and my kinky hair and my, you know, don't spend too much uh, time in the sun because you don't want to get darker because I knew that that was going to, you know, elicit ridicule. Yeah. And, you know, just big shout out to, to um, Spike Lee and that movie on Netflix where the two black scientists, like kids are like, I love you, black boy. I love you, black girl. And like, I say that to my kids as well. And they say, I love you, black woman. And it's like, that is what is my greatest accomplishment is that I'm, I I hope for my children modeling that our blackness is never anything to be ashamed about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that is our light. That is our experience. And our also our strength and our resilience lies embedded within our blackness, right? So uh, how do we embrace that fully? And I think if I hadn't had the opportunity to do all this work and to, through that, right, heal a little bit every time, 
I'm not sure that I would have been able to show up and be the mom that I am in my imperfection for my kids. So that is, that is what I'm most proud about. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Now, is, is there anything that you want to promote, like any social media or a website? Um, so listen, my spirit first said, no, no, I'm taking a break. Um, but take I will break. say, take I'm your take break, break and, and visit the website. There you go. There you go. Just, which is my name, um, NicoleMBrewer.com. And there's, it's updated. I have a support team now, so it gets updated pretty regularly about what I'm up to in the world and doing. And, um, there is some social media as well, Instagram, anti-racist theater, and conscientious theater training on Facebook is the page. So thank you for the offer for me to do the thing yes. that I, I hate doing, actually. <laughs> hey, I hear you on that. I, I hate promoting myself, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a businesswoman times two, and it's annoying, but I have to do it. You do. Thank you for spending this time with me. I cannot begin to tell you how much of an honor this was for me. I truly feel blessed. I feel all the things. I feel them up and down, vibrating throughout my body. I feel it all. So I appreciate you so much. Please keep being you. Please keep doing the work that you're doing because it is definitely needed. They need us Black women as we just saw in this past election, period. So... <laughs> Come on, come on, a word. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you so much. I really do appreciate thank you. it. Thank you, Ashley, and my love to Dan. Thank you so much. We love you, Dan. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can find Black Queens On Stage podcast and Black Literature and Art Queens Network at blackqueensonstage.com and blaqn.org. Follow me on Instagram at B-L-A-Q-N Show Michigan, on Facebook at B-L-A-Q Show Michigan, and on Twitter at B-L-A-Q-N-M-I. You can find all this info in the show notes. Please rate the show and leave a review on Apple Podcast or on Podbean to let me know what you think of the show. Thanks again. Until next time.